morning, and of course, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn with me to the Epistle of Colossians as we have been working our way uh, through Colossians. We are still in chapter one. Um, we are now kind of moving away from the introduction slash thanksgiving slash prayer that we've been in for the past uh, few weeks or so. I think uh, maybe in the past five weeks. I think this is week six in our time in Colossians and has been a good time so far and I'm very excited about uh, the time that we will spend in this great book written by Paul and of course authored by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so as we move on from this introduction, uh, last week Adam uh, finished, finished this Thanksgiving and prayer section and so I want us to kind of start with where he ended and then we're going to end with where he ended and so it's kind of a good bookend there in verse uh, 12 and 13 but this is just a uh, it's a beautiful passage I told you uh, as I preached uh, several weeks ago just looking forward to uh, Colossians ultimately this uh, these next two weeks Colossians 1 uh, 15 through 20 the section here the preeminence of Christ uh, one of my favorite uh, sections of scripture and all of God's word because it is just a passage that sings to the joy of Jesus uh, it is one that just exalts Christ more than uh, almost any passage of scripture uh, just very clearly lifts up the great name of Jesus and so let's uh, let's do this. Let's just read from uh, from verse thirteen through verse twenty. Can we do that? Good. I'm glad you agree. So Colossians one, starting in verse thirteen, says this: He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want us to get the big picture of that. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to come again as your gathered people to your word. And we thank you, Lord, for this passage that you bring us to this morning that exalts Christ as we know that all scripture does. And so help us to see this morning the exalted Savior. We thank you and we pray these things in his strong and sweet name. Amen. So this, uh, as, as Adam was wrapping up last week, as he was preaching through this text about the kingdom of God and this as transference, if you will, and he did a great job alliterating last week, and I had to confess to Adam uh, last week that uh, I was a little jealous. He got to alliterate last week, and I have no alliteration for you this morning, so I have failed you as a uh, pastor or as a preacher, but it's okay because uh, we, we try not to force alliteration, but we rejoice in the Lord when it is there. 
Um, but last week, as we talked about the transference of, of God's people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, as it says there in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins and so there's two emphases there one being the uh, the son so we see as we come into verse 15 in just a second our text this morning whenever we see this this uh, he is in verse 15 and we're going to see again in uh, next week in verse 18 and he is in this this uh, very key subject of this whole passage of he who is the he the he is christ and we get that from verse 13 he being uh, the Son, his, his beloved Son. So this is the subject carrying over to the preeminence of Christ that we make sure that we know who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of creation. It is Jesus. So this is the subject that we're going to see in 15 through 20. And then we also not only see the emphasis of Christ, but we see the emphasis of the believers transferred from this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. And this is, I mean, this should make a shout, right? That alone that Christ has transferred us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. And that's where Adam was last week. And no need to re-preach that because Adam was faithful to our text and did a wonderful job. I'm just rejoicing in the Savior that we have in Christ and that he is not a defeated king or he is not a future king. He is a very present king. And this is his very present kingdom and that he rules over it even now and so and he has delivered us he is delivering us and he will deliver us uh, once and for all uh, whenever he returns for his people and so we see this emphasis on christ the emphasis on believers and so it sets us up for uh 15 and our text this morning uh, in front of us specifically is verses 15 through 17 and so, uh, this passage, let's kind of just reread these three verses. We see the whole picture, but specifically verses 15, He, being Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we could just camp out there. We are going to camp out there for a while this morning, but just verse 15, Colossians 1.15, there is so much doctrine there is so much theology there is so much we could shout about and sing about just right there that jesus christ is the image of god himself and the firstborn of creation for by jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together i may read that a few more times before our time is over this morning it is just a beautiful rich powerful passage but before getting into the content this morning of our text let's look a little bit of how it is laid out let's look at the structure of our passage this morning for it is especially important um in regard to this section of Colossians, uh, the first, first, one of the two things I want to point out, the first is kind of a speculation. We don't like to speculate a whole lot, but we're going to s somewhat speculate. And that is that some believe that uh, 15 through 20 could be a hymn in the early church. The verses 15 through 20 could be a hymn 
that was comprised in the early church, possibly even a hymn that was before Paul, maybe even a hymn that was specific to the congregation of Colossae, one that they were already singing, and that Paul recognized that, he knew that, and he took that hymn, and he may have tweaked it and changed it up a little bit so that he could drive home this point so they could understand these rich theological truths, this doctrine that is so important, not just for this particular part of the letter, but for the whole letter. This sets up a lot of the places that Paul is going to teach the Colossians, and the rest of his letter, the things he's going to say in these next few verses. And so some would say it uh, it could very well be a hymn. It's possible, and I would even say it is personally pastorally preferable. So there you go, Adam. I may kind of alliterate my points this morning, but we're going to throw some alliteration in there. Um, but I do kind of prefer it because as, as we read 15 through 20, I just get excited if you, have a, if you can't tell already. And it should excite you if you're a believer when you read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If it doesn't excite you, I'm just going to tell you you're probably not a believer. Can I just say that? And I don't say that in jest. I don't say that flippantly. But if you read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 and you just want to move on, if it doesn't excite you and you don't care, you probably don't love Jesus. It's as simple as that. It is an exciting passage that magnifies Christ. And so I can easily see how this was a song, a hymn in the early church. But, however, there is no clear biblical evidence that supports this. So we're just going to say it is really good speculation. Very well could be the case, but we're not going to make it a a point that we're going to hang our hat on. The second thing about the structure of the text I want us to point out before we move on is that there is very likely it is written in the form of a chiasm, that there is a chiasm here. Now, what is a chiasm? As I see some of your eyes gloss over and roll back in your head and close your uh, Bibles and you just kind of check out and check your Facebook right now. Before you check out, hear me out for a moment. Chiasms are important. We talk about chiasms here at North Hills, as someone said, probably more than any other church in Washtenaw Parish. Um... Believe it or not, and I'll, I'll confess this to you. I was discussing it with our elders recently. Uh, I did not know what chiastic structure was until I went to seminary uh, a few years ago. And I'll be really honest with you. When I first was introduced to chiasms, I said, really? Like, are we just putting too much in this? Are we, like, making things up? Did Paul really write in a chiastic structure? Did the Old Testament authors, did they really have the depth of understanding to write in this way? But you have to ask the question. You have to remember who was the author of all Scripture. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. Paul is the writer. All of these, all of these writers of, of the Scripture are writers, and God inspired them. Whether they fully understood all of the structures and the literary devices that God would use for us to even better understand Scripture, we don't fully know, but we know we can understand and we can see the beauty of God's Scripture. We can understand it and study it so that we can know it better. And as we dive into studying God's Word, we have this literary device, this literary structure known as a chiasm. Now, I can't do it justice to you this morning without dry erase boards and charts and bringing up the screen, and we're not going to do all that. Don't worry. But I'm going to give you what I think is a pretty good layman's definition of a chiasm for you this morning. First, I'll give you the, uh, the actual definition. A chiasm is this. It is a literary structure where parallel elements correspond in an inverted order. A literary structure where parallel elements 
correspond in an inverted order. So if you remember and from your literary days when you were studying poetry and different things, you remember stanzas and A, B, C, D, those kind of things. So it's whenever something follows this order, like an A, B, C, D, and then, and then it goes back in reverse order, C, B, A. And so it's this kind of inversion kind of thing. And so we're going to see this in Colossians 1. Here's my layman's understanding for you. It's like a sandwich. You can get behind a sandwich, can you not? Now some of you perked up, right? I understand a sandwich. I'm getting hungry. I get that. What really defines a sandwich? What's in the middle of it, right? It's You don't go pick out a sandwich by your bread type. You don't pick out a sandwich, but what's all the other things. You really defi What defines a sandwich is the meat. Now, you're going to pick out the bread. You're going to pick out what you want on it. But ultimately, you want a roast beef sandwich, right? You don't go order a lettuce sandwich and put it on some roast beef. And if you do, you have problems, and we can help you through that. But ultimately, you go order a roast beef sandwich, and you pick all the other stuff out because it's right in the center. In a similar way, a chiasm, what it's all about is what's in the center. What is it pointing to? It's just inverted. It points to a very central truth. So what is that central truth? So as you see here in this chiasm, as you see it's a structure of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, some would actually say it's a bigger chiasm starting in verse 13. Some would even see an even much bigger chiasm through the book of Colossians. But the one that I want to point out is really from verses 15 through verse 20. And so, again, I won't get into all the details, no charts and stuff here, but I do want to point out a little bit of it to help us see to what is the driving force of these next couple weeks from verse 15 to verse 20. And so the, the beginning, you see in verse 15, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God? Or He is the image of the invisible God. When you go down to the middle of verse 18, you see again, He is the beginning. And so there's kind of your A. There's these two parallels, if you will. And so you see the, the, the top half of this chiasm is it starts with that Christ is the image of the invisible. And then the second half is that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We're going to talk about that next week. And so we're not going to break this down in, in all of his different constituent parts, but just big picture. The first half starts with he is the image of the invisible God. The, the second part is he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. But then the middle of it, it's another sandwich there. If you really can call it the, the, uh, the CD and the, the DC, is this. It says, He is before all things. In Him all things are together. And again, He is the head of the body. So you have this sandwich that right in the center of this, and don't, I don't want to lose you, but right in the center of this is, And in Him, or in Christ, all things are held together. So the structure of this passage, the structure of 1 Corinthians 15 through 20, and we can do some really some, some diving, diving into this. If we were in, like in a teaching setting, we can chart all this out. But what I don't want to miss, just because we're not in that setting, what I don't, what I don't want us to miss is, is verse 17 there, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that is the core of this passage. That is the central idea of what's going on in our time together this morning and next week. And we're going to see a big picture this week that we're going to see that Christ is preeminent in creation. And the next week he is preeminent in the new creation. Or you could say it a different way. He is preeminent in creation, this, we'll see this morning. And next week specifically in the church. 
And so Paul, he points to Christ and the creation of all things. And the next week, he dials it into the church. So the structure is very important. We may can speculate on whether or not it's a hymn, but it's very clear the structure of this points us to the central truth that all things are held together by Christ, both creation and the new creation, both the created order and the church itself, the people of God. And so it matters. It helps us as we understand God's Word, as we seek to study God's Word, as we understand some of these tools that we have. It helps us to understand better the Word of God, who is Christ. At the center of this chiasm is the centrality of Christ. So the thrust of this whole section that we will look at today and next Sunday is that Christ, that in Christ all things are held together. The Spirit has inspired such a rich way to demonstrate this wonderful and beautiful truth. Let's look at now this passage. Uh, two primary parts that we just alluded to, uh, verses 15 and 17 being this first part, verses 18 through 20 uh, being the second part that we're, that we're going to look at next week. Both signified there by, by that phrase, He is. You see in verse 15, it says He is. And then verse 18, He is. So you see this distinguishing section there. And the first half is focusing on Christ's role in creation. And the next week we'll see Christ's role in the church. Well, three things for us this morning to guide our time. The first of which is this. It's that Christ is, because it's, it's defined by He is, so He is what? This morning, the first is this. Christ is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. It says there, verse 15, Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, the Greek mindset of image, because we've got to kind of understand what image is, was a representation of something much larger. The image was a representation of something much larger. An example that was often used in kind of uh, for, for the, to understand how the Greeks understood this concept of image was they would think of cosmos, that the cosmos were an image of something much larger. It was a picture that they, was, they could look to the, the skies and they could understand there was something much larger at play in the universe. The Greek word here is... Um, is the word that we get icon from, akon. And we get icon from it. Paul uses it elsewhere, and we, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 4 4, where again he says, Christ, who is the image of God, who is the image of God, the icon of God. Now we need to be careful, right? In our 21st century thinking, every time we, we kind of walk through New Testament uh, writing and we, we seek to understand, we have to be careful at times. That sometimes we think, things, we think of things differently in a different way than maybe the original audience of Colossians would have. So we've got to be careful of this term icon. We think of icons a little bit differently. If I ask you who the icon of Westerns were, you may would say, I heard John Wayne, right? John Wayne's a western of icons. Martin Luther King, the icon of silver of civil rights. Martin Luther, the icon of the Reformation. These men represent something, but they are not the full embodiment of it. So Jesus is an icon. He's a representation of God, but he is the full embodiment of it. 
He is more than just what we think of as an icon today. He is the full embodiment of God. He is the image of. He is the full embodiment of the invisible God. Christ does not just represent God. He is God. Go with me to the book of John. A couple passages there. John chapter 1. You can't talk about Christ and creation and not look at John chapter 1. John 1, starting in verse 14. And the Word, who is Christ, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So John is declaring that Jesus Christ is coming. And John was born before him physically, but he said, Christ is before me. And he is the full embodiment of God himself. A few pages over, go with me to John chapter 14. John 14, first 11 verses there. Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, and that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not a way, he's the way. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because why? Because they've known and seen Jesus. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is, and it is enough for us. He's a little slow, isn't he? And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else I believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus, John the Baptist, or John, uh, affirms the deity of Jesus. John, uh, Jesus affirms his own deity. He does it so often. There is no doubt. Paul affirms the deity of Jesus, the, the eternal nature of Jesus. There is no doubt that Jesus is not just a representation. He is the full embodiment of God. He is fully God. As we're going to see, he is fully man. He is the image of God. He is the perfect representation of God. Go with me to Hebrews, just a few books over. We went to Hebrews a while back, Hebrews chapter 1, just the first three verses there. 
Beautiful, beautiful passage. Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So again, there's this picture. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus created the world. He created everything. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He's not just close. He's not just good enough. He's not sort of God. He is God. He is the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus Christ reflects the very nature of God in every way. For Jesus is God. As one author says, these images of the Creator do not merely represent or help us visualize God. Rather, they actually make what is hidden in God concrete and knowable so that we may know and enter into fellowship with God. God is not an impersonal, disconnected God. He has made Himself known to His people through the person of Christ. He has made Himself knowable through Jesus. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What will we know about God without Christ? Someone else said it well. To say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in Him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in Him the invisible has become visible. But this is amazing. Guess who else was made in the image of God? Anybody want to guess? I'll let you cheat. You can go to Genesis chapter 1. Flip over Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And just so this little pronoun doesn't get lost on you, there's Jesus sitting in the us. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. In the created order, God made man. And God made woman to be his image bearers. That was our design. That was the intent. And then sin comes into the world and breaks that image like a mirror that gets cracked. And Christ is the perfect image of God. He is the restored image of God. That we're able to see the invisible. The invisible becomes visible through Christ. Christ is the true and better perfect image. So whereas this image helps us understand the relationship between Christ and the Father... This next word that we're going to encounter, firstborn, helps us understand the relationship between Christ and creation. So not only is Christ the image of God, secondly, Christ is the firstborn of creation. 
And this gets a little tricky here. It can be if we're not careful. It says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now this is another potential pitfall with our Western mindset. Firstborn does not mean created. If we think of our lives and our world, we think of firstborn, we think of our children, if you have more than one child, we think of our firstborn, there was a moment that, that your firstborn child did not exist, right? If you're a parent, you think, man, that was a peaceful time. Or if you're a parent, you think, man, I can't think of life before my firstborn child uh, existed. But this is not the way of Christ. But there is never a time in which Christ did not exist. So not firstborn in the sense of first creation. For this would be heresy. And there have been many who have held this heresy. To see that Jesus was born or created was a heresy that dates back to the 300s or the 4th century by a fellow named Arian. And we'll give you all the, we don't have enough time to spend all the time with, with all Arian, but it created what we call a, a, a heresy known as Arianism. And Arianism is the heresy that Jesus Christ is a created being. Very simple. If you ever hear the term Arianism, it just means that Jesus was a created being. If you ever have a conversation with anyone and any part of it is that Jesus was created, you can just stop right there and say, we're not even going to agree to disagree. You are wrong. And we can go to Scripture. We can just go right here to Colossians 1 and just look at that He is not a created being. So we're going to see in just a moment. But this is Arianism, the heresy that Jesus was a created being, finite in nature, and not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. That He didn't exist at some point, and then He began to exist at a point. That is Arianism. And there are many, many other heresies revolving around the full deity and the eternal nature of Jesus. And it's one that we have to be very careful with. We're going to talk about that at the very end this morning. But this is not what this means when it says that he is the firstborn of creation. It doesn't mean he was the first created and then everything else got created. That would be to reject the truth of Scripture. It would be to reject the eternal nature of Jesus. And that would put us in a very dangerous place. Another way to think of Jesus being the firstborn is that he is the foremost of all creation. The Greek word here is prototokos. Firstborn, also meaning the metaphorical significance based on the ancient attribution of preeminence to the first to be born. Now, if I was just kind of flew over your head there, I'm not going to reread it for the second time. It just says that there is weight to the firstborn. There is this significance attached to this term firstborn. A couple of great examples we have in Scripture to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture for us. You can look at Psalm 89, 27. And it says this, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the psalmist says they're going to make David the firstborn. Well, what's the problem with that? If you want to write this down, you can write down 1 Samuel 17, 12 through 14. You know what you're going to find in 1 Samuel 12 through uh, 14, 17, 12 through 14? He was not the firstborn. If I remember correctly, he's one of eight had seven brothers and not just one of eight he was the least of eight Samuel showed up and said hey Jesse there's a king in your house let me see your sons and so Jesse says hey here's my seven boys take one of them he said um I must have had, I must have misheard God because these aren't the kings you, do you have any other sons 
Any other? Oh, you mean the guy back here? That So he was not just not the firstborn. He was the leastborn. But now God is saying he's the firstborn. He's the king of kings. Not the Jesus king of kings. But he's this man after my own heart. So we see this, this, uh, this aspect of being the foremost, this term of being firstborn. We would see it again in Exodus 4.22 where Israel is referred to as the firstborn. We know that Israel was not the firstborn. So the title firstborn is given to Israel, it's given to David, it's now given here to Christ as a picture, as a title of preeminence, as a title of majesty. So we can say that Christ was foremost in all of creation. Paul was not in any way implying that Christ was created, but further affirming His preeminence. He was not created. He is the Creator. He is the Creator that we're going to see in verse 16. Which brings us to our third point. So not only is Christ the image of God and He is the firstborn, the foremost of creation, but we see that in Christ is all things. All things. We're going to see this term all things show up four times in just two verses. In verse 16, For by Him all things were created. What all things? Just to be clear, he says in heaven and on earth. This is another literary device. If it's not in heaven and if it's not on earth, guess where it is? Nowhere. (laughs) It ain't, right? If it's not on heaven, if it's not on earth, it's nowhere. So for by him all things are created, all things in heaven, all things on earth, all things visible and all things invisible. If it's not visible, and if it's not invisible, guess where it is? Harold, where is it? It ain't. So again, Paul is making this, he's driving this point home to the Colossians. He's driving this point home to us that all things were created. All things, all things in heaven and on earth, all things visible, all things invisible, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And we believe that's a picture of angelic power. And Paul's going to get into angels a little bit later in Colossians. And we're not going to spend any time on that this morning. But he's just saying even over these angelic realms, none of this stuff, Anything invisible, invisible on, on earth or in heaven with angelic powers, everything was created by Him. All things again, He says, were created through Him. So it says in the beginning of 16, by Him, by Christ, all things were created. And now again, all things were created through Him. And not only by Christ and through Christ, but for Christ, for His glory. So this is our King Jesus in all things. In Christ is all things. Christ is the agent, the authority, and the goal of all creation. All creation. Not just good creation. Not just creation for the church. Not just the things of the Bible, but all creation. Everything that's ever been created. Everything that ever will be created. Every molecule, every atom, every single thing in the history of humanity. Everything in the history of existence. Because again, Christ is eternal. This is the preeminence of Christ in creation. 
He is the agent of creation. He is the authority of creation. And he is the goal of creation. Because all things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17 is just this beautiful reminder. It says, and he is before all things. He is before all things. And so in case we haven't gotten, in case the point hasn't been clear, the Holy Spirit through Paul is making it crystal clear. He is before all things. He is primary before all things. He existed before all things. It is Christ. There is nothing that existed before Jesus, and there is nothing that is greater than King Jesus. He is before all things. And then there's that central idea. And in Him, all things hold together. Christ sustains everything. Christ sustains everything. Honest question of assessment for you. Today in 2022, do you ever feel like the world is held together by duct tape? Do you ever read the news, read your Facebook feed, your social media stuff? Do you ever, if you read the newspaper still or just in your own life, you feel like your life is held together by duct tape, by JB Weld, by thumbtacks, by prayer? Do you ever feel like it's just, just there? So as we come to Colossians 1.15 here, as we come to this passage and we see the preeminence of Christ, what we're reminded of is that He has created all things and He is preeminent in all things and He is in the middle of all things and He is before all things and He holds all things together. So if Christ, the King of the universe, if He holds all things together, and if He is over all things, and if He is the foremost and firstborn of all creation, if He is the image of the invisible God, and if He has the power over everything, is our world ever held together by duct tape? Is your life ever truly in shambles? Is your life ever truly hopeless? There's only one way that your life is ever hopeless, and that's if you don't have hope. And there's only one hope that we have in this life. And that's Christ. It's not a good life. It's not a good job. It's not a good career. It's not a good spouse. It's not a good family. It's not a good 401k or good retirement plan or good health insurance. It's not a good genetics. It's not a good doctor. It's not whatever. It's only Christ. There is nothing else in this life that is our hope other than Christ. And so if He is our hope, and if He is preeminent over everything, and if He is the image of the invisible God, if He is the firstborn of over all creation, and if He is sustaining all things, then our life at times may feel tattered and worn out and like we're coming in on two wheels, but we need to look to Christ and remember that He is in all things, that He has all things together, and that this is His kingdom. And then going back to verse 13, that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us from the domain of darkness to this kingdom that is His, that He has power, and that He has created all things. 
And whenever we remember that that's the kingdom in which we live, not a future kingdom, that it's out of reach and in our dreams and something we read of, but in a kingdom that we are presently, that He is Lord over presently, then it changes how we wake up every day. It changes how we go to sleep every day. It changes how we make our decisions. It changes how we lead our families. It changes how we lead our spouses, our kids. It changes how we go to work. It changes everything about our life because our hope is in Christ. This is His kingdom. He is the sovereign ruler over everything and everyone. You may say, not everyone submits to the rule and reign of Christ. Well, Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, 10-11, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yes, Jesus is on His throne. He is in all things. He is the firstborn of creation and He is the image of God. And so quickly, why does this matter to us? There's two reasons why I think this, so much, this matters so much to us this morning. One, as I said earlier, is it refutes heresy. It refutes heresy. To understand this, to understand the eternal nature of Jesus, to understand the preeminence of Christ, to understand that He is not a created being, it refutes heresy. And I don't use that word heresy flippantly. Um, if you own any kind of uh, Christian, biblical, church, you know, social media group, sometimes we, you know, use that word flippantly, heresy, this or that, or, you know, we even use it sometimes in, in different settings flippantly. But, but heresy is something very, very specific. The defini- a clear definition is this. Heresy is a belief that, is at, that stands at odds against orthodox teachings of the church. I'll say it again if you're taking notes. Heresy, a belief that stands at odds against orthodox teachings of the historic church. And by historic church, ultimately I don't mean what does other people say. I mean what does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? And so if something stands against the clear teaching of God's Word, then it is heretical. And so for anyone to say that Christ is a created being is heresy. It is heretical. Um, and it should be denounced, pure and simple. There is no, there's no conversation there. There's no middle ground. That is what we call a tier one issue. If you're new with us, there's, there's three uh, tiers of theological differences. And tier one says, hey, we're, we can't disagree on this and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the, the deity of Jesus the co-eternal nature of Jesus, that He is God Himself. He is not a created being. He is not uh, Michael the archangel. He is not the greatest angel. He is not a good prophet. If someone believes Jesus is a good prophet, he's actually a horrible prophet because he says, I'm God. And so we, we read Colossians 1, 15-20 here. As we understand, it helps us to refute heresy, belief that stands at odds against the teaching of Orthodox Church and clear teaching of Scripture. And so Arianism has still found, finds its way in, in, in groups today who still have many, many followings. Three of those specific groups, one are Muslims, do not believe in the co-eternal nature of Jesus. 
They believe that he was a good he was a prophet and a good teacher, but that he is not God himself. The Church of Latter-day Saints do not believe in the co-eternal nature of Jesus. They believe that he was a created being, an angel like Michael the archangel and Jehovah's Witness do not believe in the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. They believe that he was a created being. So all three of those would fall in the same camp of Arianism. And we need to be aware of that as we engage friends, as we engage coworkers, we engage people with the gospel. It's helpful to understand this aspect of the gospel, the preeminence of Jesus, his eternal nature. And so why does this matter? One, it helps us to refute heresy. And secondly, for most of us this morning, to rejoice in Christ. Again, as we read through 1 Colossians 1, 15 through 20, helps us to rejoice in Jesus. What a rich and beautiful passage God has given us through the Spirit, through the pen of Paul, whether it's through some hymn that, that he used or whether it's through, uh, through something that was not a hymn. Whatever means it was, he has given us Colossians 1, 15 through 20 to rejoice in Jesus and how it helps us to to rejoice in what Christ has done for us from transferring us from the domain of darkness to His kingdom, a kingdom that He is in complete and sovereign control over. And if you can't rejoice over that, and this morning I would encourage you as we close our service and as we look to Christ even in our communion, as we sing again, I would encourage you to, to ask Jesus to change your heart. I would encourage you to look to Christ and repent of your sins and say, Jesus, I don't have this joy. I can't read Colossians chapter 1 and get excited. And I want to be excited. Because only Christ can give us a new heart. Only Christ can give us a heart that rejoices in Him. And the next week we're going to see the second half of this beautiful passage, how he's not only preeminent over creation, but how he's preeminent over the church.